Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast that finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. With cycling, it's such a kind of primeval, like a physical endeavour that you can almost, you know, physically draw on that kind of, whether it be hatred or anger, and turn it into a force for your own good. Learning to ride a bike is a rite of passage. For most people, it's part of our childhood. But for those of us who learn to ride a bike as a child, how many of us continue to ride as we get older? Well, as it turns out, more of us than ever before. Many large cities around the world have bike hire schemes. In London, the Boris Bike, as it's known, celebrates a decade of existence this year, and it's never been more popular. During lockdown, we saw stratospheric increases in its use. In July, Transport for London said that membership of the scheme had increased by 200% since March, with 85,000 new people signing up. Two wheels good, four wheels bad. Professional cycling, cycling on the road, I mean, faced an uncertain future back in March, as did all elite sport. How do you allow an event to continue when the sport itself requires its competitors to crowd together, to ride within centimetres of each other? Two metres is a long way in cycling. But that's only part of the narrative. I've long been a fan of professional road race cycling, but only from an armchair perspective. Speeding along at over 50 miles an hour wearing nothing more than lycra? No thanks. But serve me up a 21-day Grand Tour or a legendary one-day classic and I'm fully committed, as is everyone on two wheels. To delve into how the sport coped with lockdown and also to explore the unique narrative of cycling, my guest today is author and journalist Daniel Freib, who has been covering the sport's Blue Ribbon event, the Tour de France, for nearly 20 years. Chapter 1. Race to the Start Line The fact that the three major Grand Tour events, the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta a España were able to start was impressive. The fact all three managed to finish was even more so. We see images of these events beamed all over the world, crowded mountaintops, fans hyped to fever pitch, literally reaching out and touching the cyclists as they pace themselves up a mountain. Without the fans, what would it be like? And as the world we knew began to crumble around us, how did riders and journalists deal with knowing that their passion, but also their livelihoods, were potentially hanging by a thread? Yeah, there was um, the sense that it could end at any moment. I I mean, I suppose, you know, this term of the bubble was used in reference to the concept of ring fencing the teams and um you know to keep them safe but um there was also a bubble in the sense that when you were in the races that was one way when you're at the races that was one way to sort of insulate yourself from everything that was going on in the world you know i've very much kept abreast of the situation in various countries when i've been outside of the races but when when i was there you know you're so preoccupied and you're so immersed in the actual racing that you weren't really exposed to, you know, how the situation was getting worse um, in the wider world and how kind of at risk the races themselves were, or, you know, perhaps we're also sort of burying our head in the sands and and hoping, I suppose, from a selfish professional point of view, that the races would carry on. Um, I I felt it more keenly. I felt that that kind of how precarious it all was more keenly at Paris-Nice in March because um, that was a time when, you know, we didn't really know, didn't really understand the dimensions of the whole pandemic. And um, 
racing had continued until that point, but it was starting to fall away um, all around the world, really. And we were sort of the last men standing at Paris. And um, and there, you know, I mean, it's easy to forget. I think at that, at that time, um, you almost felt as though to be infected or to, to catch the virus was a bit of a kiss of death and that, you know, this could take on unfathomable proportions of where by literally, you know, athletes could be infected, journalists could be infected and could be, um, and their life could be in, in peril. Um, and so every day there at Paranese, I remember waking up and, you know, the situation was getting worse and worse and worse and new measures were being introduced, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. And then there was one day when an American rider, Lawson Craddock, was sort of escorted away from the finish line and um, was sort of bundled into an ambulance. And, you know, there it did really seem like a disaster, kind of apocalyptic movie. Um, but I suppose by the time we got to the Tour de France and the Vuelta, we we felt a little bit more, I think everyone there felt as though they sort of understood what the kind of pandemic was, was about more. And again, from a very selfish point of view, they were also good to work on. I mean, um, from our point of view, it was easier, it was better organised, it was more professionally organised if you're working for the TV than races usually are, to be perfectly frank. I was astonished that an event like the Tour de France managed to go ahead because we tend to think of these Grand Tours as, as a as a three-week exercise in tourism soft power, don't we? We see, you know, the French countryside, the Spanish countryside, the Italian countryside, and we see tens of thousands of people lining the mountaintop. And when you kind of factor that in, you think there's no way this is going to go ahead. And yet, if we can keep people away, then we might have a chance. It must have been bizarre for the riders to be riding up these iconic mountains with no one around i wonder whether that made their suffering perhaps even more acute than it was normally be i mean i think you know they're very accustomed to to that experience i mean they that is their daily that is their routine to ride on kind of deserted roads mountain roads and and uh, you know as a visual as a sort of spectacle on television i think that um cycling zone have suffered a lot less than other sports have um you didn't necessarily you know notice the lack of crowds to the same degree and and also you know you're talking about arenas that are 200 kilometers stretches of road and um okay you know at the tour de france for example um every year we get these faintly ridiculous figures about you know the number of people at the roadside but you know even if we were to take them at face value and say that you know on some stages you get a million people a million people dispersed over 200 kilometers um it's quite different from a stadium or an indoor arena. And, you know, I, to be honest, it, it felt quite safe. But I also acknowledge, as you know, as we know, as you, I'm sure, have found as well, everyone's kind of relationship with the, the fear and the paranoia and the anxiety is different. And I, I suppose I'm quite, have been sort of quite relaxed about it from the start. I think there's been an urge to make sport at the elite level as you know, give it as many opportunities as possible to go ahead because we are, you know, addicted as fans to sport, whatever that, whatever that might be. I, I actually think when you look past the environment in which the professional cycling world operated this year, it was a phenomenal Tour de France and a fascinating welter. Some of the most exciting cycling I've seen, the ending of the Tour de France was insane. Uh, in terms of, you know, if, if if a script writer had come up with that, you'd have said, Mark, you're smoking something. That's crazy, right? But it was an astonishing set of events, wasn't it? Yes, um, it was, I guess, purely 
coincidental that the racing was that good. Although in some respects, I think at the the Vuelta, you know, there were a lot of riders there who um, were quite uncertain about their futures, and that might have that might have contributed to um, the fact that it was more exciting. The, perhaps also the the fact that there were three stages or three fewer stages at the Vuelta than usual, so it was eighteen instead of twenty one. That kind of compressed the action slightly and um, made it all seem frantic and hectic. But I think, you know, again, my perspective of it being at the races is quite different, I think, from people who watch and enjoy it at home. I think I got the impression that with the tour, they try to leverage, for example, the some of the aspects that people of it really enjoy anyway, like the landscapes and how visually impactful it was. I think they try to leverage that even more this year. But also, I think people because they couldn't travel or have people have generally not been able to travel this year maybe they were more receptive to that and they felt more kind of wanderlust and more that they felt a real kind of yearning to to see these places to be at these places um which you know uh, also fed into the spectacle i think yeah it's fascinating if i think about my own cycling education um when i was growing up in the in the 80s um it was kind of you know, if you were a cycling fan, it was all about Bonesto, as was then, and it was all about Miguel Indurain. And watching the sport as a as a youngster, um, it felt counterintuitive to watch competitors from different teams working together for a common goal. And I and I wonder whether people, when they look at cycling, it is a relatively simple conundrum um, in that first over the line wins. So therefore, if you are ahead of everybody else, it's fine. But there's a huge amount of tactics in play that when you start to understand, the more you understand the sport of cycling, the more I think it, it gives. Do, do you think it's a sport that requires a, a significant amount of mental and emotional investment by fans to try and understand the, the nuances in the sport? It's a difficult question. It's um, It's difficult to sort of take yourself back to that state of naivety in which you first consumed it you know I'm, I'm sometimes aware that you know a brake will go down the road go off the front and you know you're very blase about it and very matter of fact because you know I mean after a certain number of sport, years following the sport there's a quite simple almost mathematical calculation you can do to work out whether a brake has got any chance or not but you know back then the first few kind of glimpses of bike races I got on the tv or the first few stages I watched you know you, you really I think maybe the commentators kind of deceived you into thinking that it was going it was a real kind of pursuit and that the brake did have a chance of succeeding and of course it, it didn't it was absolutely doomed so sometimes having a greater degree of knowledge can actually impair your your enjoyment of the racing because you feel as though it is quite it can feel quite formulaic um when you've seen you know years and decades worth of the same sort of scenario playing out in races whereas someone who's completely naive might be might get even more you know get more excited about it um but i think the, the really interesting thing in cycling is there are people i always think of it as a kind of pie chart everyone's everyone's kind of interest is is a, its own sort of pie chart and made up of different things and uh, you know for some people the kind of physiology or the, the tech and the equipment or technology and um, that can that can make up sort of 60 percent of the pie chart whereas other people i think you know maybe in my case the sort of landscapes and the places and the and the history um, account for probably the majority of, of that pie chart and i don't think um, you can say that maybe to, to quite the same degree with um, with other sports. 
Chapter 2, The Theatre of Cycling. Sport, like theatre, has a deep relationship with location. If you've ever watched Shakespeare at Stratford or The Globe, you'll know what I mean. Sometimes sport and theatre join forces. Think snooker at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. In cycling, the locations play as much a part in the narrative as the sport itself. In fact, in a way, the locations are the sport. I wanted to know how important it is that cycling, unlike some sports, has this incredible ability to capture a scene as well as a race. Some sports can feel as though they're, and most sports are, sort of hermetically sealed and they kind of take place in isolation from real life. Whereas cycling, you know, it takes place in physical locations that, you know, we can all, we're all or usually at liberty to, to visit and experience. And um, I think that's one aspect um, of it. Um, you know, the, 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 there's obviously a familiarity that's spread over years and years of these famous locations being featured in these races. And over, you know, once you've watched Out the West Stage once or twice or three times and you've listened to how it's described in the, by commentators or in the press, you start to, you know, recognise certain things about it to the point where you can sort of instantly... You, start to be able to instantly recognize it and then you start to feel as though you're part of a club really I suppose or kind of a movement or almost a religion I I think we do see the same thing in other sports I always think the classic example of this is the Augusta National and the US Masters um, in golf I think you know it's the one course in the world more even than St Andrews for example the Open Championship where you know most people will know exactly what the 13th hole looks like or the 15th hole and um you know, there's definitely a comfort in that familiarity. And um, and there's a, it kind of, I think it gives a cadence to people's, to people's year almost that they associate that with a certain time, you know, when they see Alpe d'Huez or they see the, you know, Augusta National, they associate that with a certain time of year. And of course, you know, in the media, we feed these, we feed this mythology. You, you know, we love to tell the stories of, great exploits, great defeats, great, you know, ignominy that's occurred in these locations, whether it be, you know, Mont Ventoux. I mean, it's it's mythology in a classic sense, you know, um, that even the vocabulary we used, it's, we talk about, you know, almost like monsters, dragons, you know, it's almost, it's this kind of f- fantastical vocabulary we use or we draw from. And, um, you know, there's something quite childlike about it as well, I suppose. And, you know, we talk in terms of slaying the monsters, dragons, or exercising ghosts and, and things along those lines. And we probably build up, build it up to um, build these things up, these places into something there more than they actually are. But, um, yeah, it's all part of the, um, of the, the theatre and the pantomime, I suppose. And I wonder whether that's because the suffering is epic. You know, it is pure greek mythology it is you know mortals versus gods um and i don't think that's you know overstating it but when you when someone's having a bad day on the bike it is blindingly obvious that they are battling not just inner demons but external ones as well and and when you see a cyclist you know almost starting to go backwards towards the peloton it's just it's heartbreaking isn't it but i wonder whether it's the suffering in bike racing can be so epic that we use the language of um, of Greek mythology to describe that. Mon Ventoux is often described as having a, a lunar landscape, isn't it? Almost if it looks like a bit like the moon. But um, is that right? Is the suffering so obvious that we, we get drawn to it? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, cycling has this in common with, well, the way mountaineering has been described, uh, um, you know, going back through 
through the ages. And um, I suppose one slight worry or kind of regret may be that, you know, in the same way that if you go back and read, you know, accounts of the golden age of what the sort of golden age of alpine mountaineering in the 19th century there's just the sense of awe and all this the kind of um you know how daunting how impossible these mountains were, were regarded as back then i mean at a time when you know they still thought that dragons and and witches lived in the mountains so people wouldn't um, go up there you know that's i suppose as as one peak is conquered and then you know and then an even higher one conquered some of the perhaps some of the awe starts to be diluted. And perhaps, you know, just thinking there when we were talking about some of these locations out of the way as Mont Ventoux, um, they're, they're a lot more accessible than they used to be. I mean, by things as, um, by virtue of things as, as mundane as low-cost trap budget airlines, but also the fact that, you know, th- there's no two ways about it. Bikes now uh, make these incredibly difficult climbs a lot more accessible than they used to be. And, um, you know, I just wonder, and I think, you know, we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years, Grand Tour organisers have, have, have sought out these, you know, ever steeper, um, ever more or impossible seeming climbs. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and that's that's been part of that is this, this kind of, this desire, this constant desire to push, to keep pushing towards the outer limits of, of human endurance and, and suffering. But, um, yeah, it's difficult to know. Um, what direction that will take next we we tend to know some of the more iconic bike races by virtue of the fact that they win lots of races and are therefore in the media a lot and there are some household names that we could we could name in the uk i I would imagine that pretty much everybody over a certain age would would know who bradley wiggins were but wouldn't necessarily know who luke rowe was as an example And and i think it's important particularly for writers to understand this that now more than ever, it's more. It's very difficult to win a Grand Tour without a highly functioning team behind you. Yes, we know who sits on the podium. We know who wears the yellow jersey and you know waves the line at the end of the day. However, you don't get to the top of the mountain or the finish without lots of other minor characters, as we would call them, um, pulling their weight. I wonder how much people would be surprised to know how much goes on within a team in terms of that communication, the domestiques, the captains, the mountain domestiques, etc. It's w- without everybody pulling together within the team, it's 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 very easy for it to fall apart, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's sometimes even to someone who does understand cycling or who's you know who's done it themselves or has watched it over a number of years, it's sometimes difficult to communicate exactly how that manifests itself, the the teamwork, and um, it, it can be very small things um, that really are almost invisible to the naked eye, you know, just moving around in a peloton, wanting to you know wanting to move left rather than right, and um, you know, okay, you could take a, a, a the wheel of a of a rider on. Um, on another team you can follow the rider um a rider on another team but you know when it's a rider on your own team it's like having a remote control you can say right we go you know i want to go over there and he'll take you there and um you know and that might seem like a tiny thing but it's um a certain number of watts that you then save which you can then use and repurpose um later in the race and you know this gets multiplied time and time again over the course of a, a stage a day and it all counts and um you know we hear all the time that the margins, you know, not just in cycling, but we hear in other sports as well, margins um, of victory and defeat are getting finer and finer. But it is it is true, you know, you that all those tiny little efforts that 
teammates will help you with. They all can make the difference to winning and losing. You talked about a lot of riders potentially riding for their future. Um, that came up earlier on, and, and I wonder whether that contributed to how exciting the racing was. There's, as I understand it, going to be a fair chunk of um, change coming up uh, in terms of people moving around. We know that Chris is leaving um, Team Ineos um, to go to Israel Startup. And a lot of riders are literally over the winter now riding for their future, aren't they? Forget that actually, although it's elite sport, you still get hired and fired like everybody in every other industry. Do you think we'll see uh, a good amount of change coming up in terms of teams that maybe don't survive and, and then the personnel within the team do? Well, the decisions have pretty much all been made. Um, and there are there are a few teams that have still got spots to fill on their roster, but most of the riders now sort of know we're in um, sort of late November. Most of the riders know where they'll be riding next year, but there's no doubt it's been a, it's been a, turbulent and unusual last two or three months um usually and um, nowadays most of the contracts kind of or the kind of discussion starts taking place in the spring um as regards the following year and most of the deals get done kind of before the end of august whereas this year obviously the season only really started in august so a lot of the deals have been done late in the year and um, but now as i said there are some teams which still have a few spots left you know, I say there are a few spots left and there are maybe, you know, 100, 150 riders who have been in decent teams in the last couple of years who haven't got um, anything sorted for next year. And, um, yeah, it's, I guess it's a busy period for the agents, of those riders. And um, there's an unusual situation at the moment with Team um, NTT who have been in the World Tour top division the last few years. But it looked as though they were going to have to fold. Their main sponsor was pulling out. But now they've had a bit of a reprieve and they've managed to sort of cobble together a, a small budget, I think, for next year. But they've got um, pretty much carte blanche. They've got, um, well, 10 or, or 15 free spots on the team. And they can basically, they can decide exactly what shape they want to give to their team for next year. Um, but, you know, with what's left on, on the market and it's... Um, a situation like that or a scenario like that is really is really interesting because in professional cycling you know you're not just competing in one type of competition you know you're not only keeping competing in grand tours but you've also got classics and and you know teams have different imperative different objectives it may be that your main goal as a team is to get your riders on tv as much as possible and in, in the crudest possible sense and, and therefore you know you might want a lot of breakaway specialists you might want to you might have particular commercial interest in belgium in the low countries for example and the, the most important races for your sponsors in those countries will be the belgian classics so you might neglect the grand tour so um it's, it's really interesting um to see how you know teams look to build their roster not only with a view to gain sporting success but also to sort of tick all these other boxes Chapter three, the suffering. Hemingway once said that writing is easy. All you have to do is sit at a typewriter and bleed. I often think of that when watching cycling. The suffering is palpable. You aren't just fighting the competition. Very often you're fighting your own inner demons and the monsters in the mountains. For riders like Chris Froome, you may also have to battle with the crowd. Yeah, I mean, I think in his case, with the temperament Chris Froome has, that was probably a good motivator. A lot of it was pretty baseless vitriol. And I think, you know, you see this in other sports, in other contexts where 
there's a certain type of athlete with a certain type of mentality that can draw a lot of strength from um, animosity and particularly when you know with cycling it's such a kind of uh, almost a primeval like a physical endeavor that you can almost you know physically draw on that kind of whether it be hatred or anger and turn it into a force for for your own good I mean you know I think about riders in the past who have really thrived on being criticized by the media for example I think probably Mark Cavendish was one really enjoyed proving a point to and often often um the slights and the criticism were imagined slights and criticism, things that they created and, and built up in their head, or maybe people in their entourage even kind of fed and, and embellished in order to motivate. I, I'm thinking of uh, the likes of Peter Sagan as well, who kind of thrives on that, you know, bad boy, lone wolf image. Um, there was a couple of times in the in the tour where he said, I, I don't understand why the commissaires are you know, unnecessarily picking on me. And you think, well, what, watch the replay, Peter, because, it's, you know, it's it's blindingly um, obvious. But some of the characters are larger than life. Some are very happy to stay um, deep within, you know, the peloton. I, I wanted um, just to close by talking about the peloton itself. If you've not been to a professional bike race and watched a peloton sweep it's an incredible sound and an incredible sight to behold because the proximity with which these riders ride is incredibly dangerous. You know, one false step and the whole thing is coming down and everyone's traveling at, say, 70, 80 days wearing Lycra, effectively. Um, the jeopardy is very, very high. The Peloton, for me, has an aura. At times, it's it does that calculation that you talked about, that very simple arithmetic as to how far have we got to go and how much time does the breakaway have on us. At times, it does stand back and say, it's okay, the break can go, it's no threat to GC. But at times, when it switches on, it's electrifying how quickly a break can be brought back. I, I wonder whether writers would do well to think about the peloton as a character, because it can, for me, change depending on what mood it's in it can hunt people down it can go it can also start panic in events of crosswinds and when it starts echeloning and all of that kind of stuff it's fascinating to behold do you do you like observing the peloton and seeing how it changes yeah i mean i, I kind of think it, you, you sort of described it there in terms of you know almost almost a predator um which it can be but i i think of it more like a, a kind of house of commons <laughs> Um, <laughs> almost a, a political entity, which it, right. which it is, but with more with more parties represented than the than the House of Commons, and then probably and more equally represented. Yeah, it's a very it's a very political um, entity most of the time, and um, the the sometimes the negotiations and the deliberation can be sort of can be taking place between the riders sometimes it's happening in the team car some car sometimes it's not taking place at all it's just mutually it's just understood and um how they arrive at a consensus is, is sometimes quite difficult to fathom and it's quite difficult to fathom even for people who are part of that decision making process um and sometimes decisions are not even actively taken by anyone or anything in the peloton they just kind of fall upon and um sort of settle within the peloton and you know whatever decision that is is kind of followed to its natural conclusion but um yeah there's so many different interests i mean there are generally between 18 and 21 teams represented within that peloton and so there are um, 18 to 21 different factions all with different 
vested interests and um, somehow that ha- all has to be reconciled and and um, sometimes it's 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 reconciled purely by virtue of physical ability um physical strength sometimes um that is the only real deciding factor but more more often um there are the sort of alphas alpha teams alpha riders um who, whose voice is is worth um carries a little bit more influence than than all of the others there was a moment during just talking about it as Peloton, there was a moment during the Vuelta where the commissaires had changed the way they viewed the ending of a particular race um, and switched it from being um, a summit finish to being a sprint finish. And therefore, that meant that a lot of people missed out. There was a real shop steward moment with Chris Froome on the start line the next morning, wasn't there? Almost trying to get the race director, who, of course, was powerless to do anything about it, but to have some kind of statement. I saw then the peloton sort of standing. They were Some of them wanted to go, some of them didn't. And because it was Froome, I think, um, and because of his stature, they, they kind of let him do it. But it, it did seem that that was a very unionist shop steward moment for, um, for the whole peloton. Yeah, it was. We used to see that much more often. Um, the, you know, people often talk about the fact that there used to be these figures, the patron the the sort of um kind of godfather of the peloton um and you know over the years each generation has kind of had one or or, um a handful of these patron kind of figures and we often hear and people often malign that the fact that they don't exist anymore um I, i don't think that's that's quite true there are still you know, senior riders. We had two good examples this year. The Chris Froome one was was one example at the Vuelta, then another one at the uh, Giro. There was a, sort of a decision taken by the riders, very much a kind of union type decision that they they didn't want to ride. Basically, I think it was two stages from the end um, in the cold and rain. And um, and one rider in particular, Adam Hansen, um, Australian rider, was really the spokesperson and the go between between the organisers and the riders on that on that occasion and and you know that was mainly by virtue of, of age and experience he's sort of 36 37 year old rider who who had this this kind of on, um, honor or responsibility bestowed upon him to liaise with the um race organizers but yeah there have been i mean the most famous one is bernardino in the 1980s early 1980s and late 70s who was um, very much a patron um, of the peloton but um it, it's complicated by various things obviously the different vested interests of the teams but things like language as well i mean the professional cycling has, has changed a lot from that point of view when i started covering sports so 20 years ago almost no one spoke english and it was not really anyone's first language or any team's first language any particular influential organization's first language whereas now um it's very much displaced french in particular but also um, Italian and Spanish is sort of the, the lingua franca of pretty much any given major race. Yes, it was interesting. I, I noticed that you, you're you doing more interviews in English than than I had recalled in, in recent years. I wonder whether that is, you know, symptomatic of a lot of the younger riders and younger teams that are, that are coming through. We had three relatively young winners of the three Grand Tour races um, this year. As things stand... What does 2021 look like? Is everything set to occur at the time it would normally expect to occur or have, or are things still in flux at the moment? Um, at the moment, there have been, well, there have already been some cancellations. Um, the one, one of the first kind of 
blocks of the of the cycling season now is in Australia, and um, I think the the COVID restrictions there are pretty severe, or have been pretty severe since the start of the pandemic. So one one of the major races um, that takes place in Australia at the start of the season, Tour Down Under, has been cancelled. But that usually happens in in January, the end of January. So that's also you know fairly soon coming up, fairly soon. But um, thereafter, the the season sort of slowly um, it kind of moves through the gears in February, March, April, and those the races that usually take place in those months at the moment are are due to go ahead as usual, um, as normal. But um, you know, it's all very much penciled in rather than inked in at this stage. I think. Well, pencil is as good as it gets at the moment. Daniel Free, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. I really appreciate it. Conclusion. A massive thanks then to Daniel Free for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? In previous episodes of the show, we've spoken about lavishing attention on minor characters to make sure they do much more than just serve the arc of the protagonist. But cycling is a narrative in which this is exactly what the minor characters do, and yet they still feel rounded and well-drawn. They know their role in the team. Is this something you can use in your writing? Daniel spoke about the cycling pie chart and how a single event can serve many different interests and narratives. Is the same true of your writing? Have you got breadth across your audience? Or are you writing for too narrow a niche? Sometimes a greater degree of knowledge can impair your enjoyment of something. That's certainly the case with writing. When you start, you can be fearless because you don't know what you don't know. But over time, with feedback, with greater exposure to the art and craft, the doubts may creep in. It's like learning a language. To borrow a cycling phrase, the two best stages are beginner and advanced. But when you find yourself at intermediate level searching for a word or a tense, it can be unpleasant. But persist, sit at the typewriter and bleed. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Over Series 2, we'll return to the world of elite sport several times to see what other lessons we can uncover. But goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.